Yo, this is official Shawmer International Film Festival spoiler alert. We are going to spoil the movie we we're going to talk about and probably some other ones. So uh, be warned. Good. <clears throat> On this episode of Shawmer International Film Festival, I'm here with Gerald Alberino and Stash Makita to talk about Texas auteur Wes Anderson's latest film, The French Dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun. Action. One Take Jake is back, my friend. He did it again. Just when I thought I couldn't, I did it again. Fucking amazing. Oh, I'm really excited about this flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please notice that exits are conveniently located at the front and rear of this auditorium. Silence yourself, though, now. Be careful, please, of others. Please refrain from smoking and talking in the auditorium. And now, and now, and now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the Chomer International yeah. Film Festival. Oh, oh, my guess you have something to say, Sash? My bad, I didn't realize we were starting that quick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I was just going to say that there was a trailer for um, West Side Story before the movie, and I wrote down, West Side Story is a classic tale about how your family is less important than a teenager's clueless notion of what love is. <laughs> that's, it's like, I guess that's like pretty much every musical, though. Like, it's just, it's all about, like, uh, like, fucking my emotion matters and everything else. I'll tear this city apart to show how much my emotion is important. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the whole family legacy down the toilet. Yeah, just for some lady you just met. I <laughs> wanted to fuck a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Ansel Elgort is is the lead in West Side Story, and I think uh, he shouldn't be that. I, th- I don't think he should be in anything. No, after he tanked Baby Driver, he shouldn't be allowed to make movies no more. And I, I like I liked Baby Driver, but I, I remember I was like, uh, somebody on Twitter was just like, that movie would have been better if it was. Uh, there's a black guy playing baby instead of Ansel Elgort, especially because the movie's set in Atlanta. Or like a man-type man in general. But he's a baby. Yeah, but I mean... I, I, was, I wish there was a baby actually driving. I was really disappointed when I went and saw the movie and didn't actually see an infant behind the wheel, uh, you know. They could have been like uh, uh, Baby's Day Out store. Part 2. <laughs> baby boss, boss baby. Yeah, there's a lot of baby content going on. They could have fucking squeezed that in Yeah, there. they should have had Alec Baldwin voice him. Yeah. Alec Baldwin, like, the day after he shot that lady. Oh, man, like, what an emotional just, performance that was. Yeah, it would just been so, like, so much gravitas. Rest in peace to, uh, I think his name, her name is Helena Hutchison. Uh, sorry that he, he did that to you. Um, welcome to Shawmart International Film Festival. <laughs> <laughs> we got to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> you can't cut it out because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat it. I'm gonna say it as my own. <laughs> oh man. Um Welcome to Shawmart's International Film Festival for another week. I'm here with uh, two great guests, two of my favorite guests, two of my only guests. Hi, I'm Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're here with Ted Lasso himself, star of Apple TV Plus's uh hit uh sitcom, uh Ted Lasso, otherwise known as Stash Makita, and we have Returning guest, Jero Alberino. What's this, three? The, the three-peat? Well, we got this one. You got Dune. Uh, what else were you here for? No Time to Die. No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, oh, no, and uh, what do you call it? What was the uh, the name of the, not the high-rise, of the apartment. What's it called? The Raid. Oh, my God. The Raid. The high-rise. The high-rise. <laughs> I was going to say that this is my third time on here as well, but then I remember you have not had Ted Lasso on your show before. Yeah, this is the first first time 
with here with Ted, and uh, it's great to have you here, bud. Um, you said like uh, the thing I love about Ted Lasso, you, uh, is you such a beacon of positivity and yeah, I'm nice, but I'm hiding emotional trauma. Yeah, yeah, that's your whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have you gentlemen here, Ted Lasso, our big star. This is this is probably gonna get a lot of views, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, fucking clicks because I got Ted here. But um, we got you here to talk about uh, Wes Anderson's latest, his tenth film, the French Dispatch. Fuck the French Dispatch <laughs> of the <laughs> Liberty Kansas Evening Sun. Um, and gentlemen, before um, I I want to just wait to say up front, I love the movie. Does it really have a long title like that? Like three billboards has that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I didn't it, know it's that. just the French Dispatch. But like that's because within the context of the movie, it's supposed to be like this is like the French dispatch of the liberty like the, yeah, the newspaper is called the liberty kansas evening sun and this is just like the french edition you know, that, that they sent yeah. back to america so um but uh i wanted to say i'm watching this movie and i think i've come to the conclusion and it might just be recency bias that wes anderson is my favorite director like i love this guy i, I fucking i like i just think he's like i think he's one of the best i'm gonna be honest he's not even my favorite anderson Though I do like him very much. No, I I love. Uh, I think he's. Um, obviously, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. He's one of my favorite uh, as well. But I think what I love about um, Wes is he's like nobody. I don't think there's anybody outside of like science fiction who builds a world that I would like to inhabit more than this guy. And like aside from the fact that like. I would be the only black character aside from Jeffy Wright in these spaces. I think like hey, I, you're forgetting about Toheeb Jimo, my friend from the cast of my show, Ted Lasso. Yeah, he has such a big role in this one. He said a couple words. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I don't know. He he just makes these like uh he has like these fully realized worlds, and it's not our world, but it sort of is our world. And I just love like I I love watching his movies. I think like like um these like that uh that Ringer podcast, the rewatchables. And it's all about like uh, you know movies with a lot of rewatchability. But I think he is very high, secretly very uh, Wes Anderson is secretly very high on the list of rewatchable movies. Like uh, because he packs them with so much texture and so much story. Um, like I, I like this movie in particular. I'm probably gonna watch it like like three more times. Like just in theaters. I just I just loved it. Yeah, yeah I was gonna ask, that was gonna be my first question to see like how many times do you think you're gonna rewatch this in theaters alone. Um, and I also think this movie is going to have an interesting, like, rewatchability in the sense that it's kind of, like, Buster Scruggish in the sense that, like, if this ever gets on a streaming service, it's like, you know what? I don't need to watch the whole movie. I just want to watch 30 minutes, Article 1, or, you know, you can kind of pick and choose yeah, some of your spots. You can watch whatever section a, you want to watch at the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it can be really fulfilling. I think that's pretty cool. That's yeah. a great point there, Jiro. Yes. Thank you, Ted. I'm um, full of them. I'm really full of them, honestly. I'm just glad to be here. Uh, this is a long time coming, talking movies with my best friend, Stash and Sean. And uh, Stash, uh, Stash should I... we tell the people how we... I, I thought we were talking to Ted Lasso here. Oh, oh, I forgot, I forgot. Actually, yeah, completely. Nice to meet you, Ted. Um, I I got to be honest, as much as uh, notoriety as you have, I have not felt the need to shell out the two ninety nine for Apple TV. So I am unfamiliar with your wit and your charm and your uh, lovability. So it's great to see it in person. Well, if you want to sign up for a free 14-day trial, I'll tell you what. Our show is sweeter than honey. Mm. <laughs> sweeter than honey. Mm-hmm. 
It's one of one of the the great Ted Lasso isms that he says on Ted Lasso, <laughs> hit sitcom. I say a whole bunch of dumb shit like that. <laughs> free, free might be too high of a price. Um, you were saying uh, the rewatchability, I think, and then uh, Stas said how. I mean, sorry, Ted Lasso uh, <laughs> noted how how. Yeah, he did note that. I remember he said that. <laughs> this, sounds like a, this kind of sounds like a Wes Anderson script right now a little bit. Like, we're just speaking extremely directly about what's happening, completely breaking the podcast uh, fourth but wall. We couldn't it's tell a, if you were speaking very directly because almost none of what you said came through. Yeah, it was very indirect in the sense that it came through in garbled uh, chunks of... <laughs> but it is Halloween oh, that we're recording this, so let's just blame it on spookiness. Yeah. Yeah. That was very spooky. There's a fucking there's ghosts and ghouls at play that are fucking fucking shit. Cooled up. Um gentlemen, what did you think of the movie? Feel free to start, either one of you. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to defer to Jiro because he's our calling guest. See, that's why we, that's how I know we're doing okay. with the real Ted Lasso here yeah, because you're so uh affable and kind very and very uh, nice. <laughs> uh but yeah, I uh I thought it was the best Wes Anderson movie I've seen. <laughs> And I thought it was the most emotional Wes Anderson movie I've seen. Because whereas he gets uh, critiqued a lot for being emotionally stunted. Would you say I, that it was sweeter than Honey? It was sweeter than Honey. <laughs> it was it was sweeter than Texas Honey, which is, I think, where I'm from. That's probably. right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, you share that in common with Wes. Oh, yeah. That's probably why you felt such an affinity towards his, his films. Could be. Um, but yeah, you say it feels like more emotional than uh, other, or like he's he's been criticized for not, yeah, or just maybe it's he he tapped into more like real things to me, mm-hmm. or but I always felt like while there is emotion in his movies, a lot of it is kind of like tempered in irony, but there was like in each story of this, like the um, the artist one. Where they where they go uh, uh, the first story one where they talk about how to tell like uh, real abstract art like if an artist is actually good or faking and then like the youth versus experience part in the second story and then like the perspective of a foreigner in the third story I thought they ta- all tapped into like real emotional like raw they hit raw nerves for me dude yes yes. <clears throat> <laughs> I agree, Ted. Now, what do you think, Gerald? Um, I think that this was a difficult task, uh, trying to direct a movie or a tell story about you know prose and written language is very difficult. And when we've seen it work uh, successfully, it's normally been about newspapers and magazines, and it normally is less about the prose and more often about the process of journalism. Uh, so it was really cool to see how I think West was playing with language in multiple ways. First, you know, very blatantly with having a lot of, you know, exposition on the screen. Um, I really thought it was a bad choice at first, but as it went on, I kind of realized it was in the spirit of the of the homage. And then uh, I think he was really playing with cinematic language. I thought the he was adding new vocabulary uh, to cinematic language. Uh, with some scenes we'll probably discuss, him switching black and back and forth from black and white to color, um, and then also um, his like when he had um, what was that uh, Benicio del Toro? He gets replaced by a uh, Tony Ravioli. 
Tony Ravioli. Um, Yo, that I'll was one of that, that was one of my really cool. one of my Tony. favorite parts is when um when Tony Ravioli's was playing <laughs> uh young Benicio del Toro and to signify that it was going back to like present time or at least present for like where the flashback started. Like him coming when in to tap him on his Benicio shoulder. Benicio comes in the room, sits down in Tony Ravioli's seat, and then he like <laughs> takes off the medal and puts it around Benicio. Yeah. I thought that was so I've never awesome. seen that before. And Nothing I thought that was such like a, that. Such it a cool such a like awesome way to thing. signify what was happening. Yeah. yeah. And like he could have just had it like he could have just had him sitting in that room and just did like a cross dissolve or just like a uh you know a fucking jump cut to it being Benicio. But to have it done that way is such a like just a it's just care for like the craft of of movie making and just like expressing something in a different way. I thought it was And it made it like feel like really um intimate. Yeah. Somehow. It I don't, it really I don't know did. Why? Um so I wanna get I wanna talk about each section of the movie separately. But before I do, I wanted to talk about um Gerald kind of touched on this is like this what one of the things I love about Wes Anderson and why I was saying um I think he might be my favorite director is and again, this might just be recency bias, I'm sure the next time when I see Licorice Pizza, I'll probably say PTA and when I see whatever uh you know, any other movie, I'll say some other director. But what I think I love about Wes Anderson is like he is I was listening to a big picture podcast and they were talking about like um researching Wes Anderson and they were saying like as a kid, he wanted to be an architect and then he wanted to be a novelist and he ends up as a filmmaker. And I think both of those things come across in uh, how he, he tells stories. He's, he's, yeah. First of all, he's very... I think he might be like my favorite storyteller in uh, movie making is in, in, in the sense that like he tells the most non-traditional stories of anyone I've ever seen. Like just, just the idea, like, like each element of that, the first story, right? Yeah. Um, is like, it's a... A murderous painter who's in prison who comes into contact with a art dealer who the painter is painting pictures of a fucking guard. Like there's there's yeah. so many elements. And like the French unrest of the sixties immediately to follow. Yeah, like it's the like the framing of all that stuff is like like in all those elements, I've never seen anything like it. Like like no one it's 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 a straightforward story, but also it's very much like the elements are so like uncommon. You don't have that stuff all like you have a story about maybe a, a, a Frenchman And like unrelated by anything but this newspaper and somehow still make it cohesive. Absolutely. And that's what that's what I was gonna say is like I love the and I've never seen this before, is framing a movie as if it was the issue as 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 an issue of a magazine yeah. is is an incredible like and in in and it justifies every action of the story like like even as a series of like uh kind of loosely related vignettes it makes so much more sense when you frame it as this is not just like uh you know just kind of unrelated stories but these are unrelated for a purpose because this is how this guy has uh, um this is how Arthur would have cobbled together this episode um this uh edition of the magazine i think that's like a fascinating thing yeah it's great and it's weird because one of the like, because this movie, I think I checked after seeing it and it had like 73% on Rotten Tomatoes. And a lot of the biggest critiques was that there's no story, which I thought was absurd. It's so much story. It's the story of this man's life. I mean, it's just the, the it's a vignette of his life in, in a way itself. You know, it's constantly parodying itself and self-referential. Um, yeah, and I feel like even the th- even if you were to rely only on the three main articles, quote unquote stories, there's plenty of story there. There's plenty of tension, play- yeah, plenty painted. of characterization, plenty of plot. You know, if even if you're keeping it that simple, I mean, it's pretty. I don't know. That's a horrible read. There's so said much that. detail. Oh, so many people said it too. 
what I was going to say. Is like I don't think there's anybody I've seen have this much detail in a story like like in like just in each story there is an incredible amount of detail yeah. and like 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 Wes Anderson is one of those people like sort of like um, George R R Martin or Frank Herbert. Or one of those writers was like, I know he knows the backstory of every single one of these characters. I know he knows like how to get around each one of these streets that he made up in his mind. Like he feels like these these are not like no character is serving. Like even like think about um and we can get into talking about the the first story um the Benicio del Toro uh, section. Just think about how he has the backstory of uh Lea Seydoux's character Simone the guard, and he gives like uh he dedicates like a just a, like a ninety second um. Like a little interlude to telling this guard story. Yeah. Who, like, he, like she's she's important to the plot, but also not important. Like she's not like um she's not like the driving force of it. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. like the fact that he would have that much detail about this character, and then it comes like and, and those details like show up later. Like when he's like um like in that little uh, section when he's like telling her life story, you see that for a second that she's pregnant. They don't mention it, and then later on he says like um when she retires, she goes to live with the daughter that she gave up. That she, yeah, exactly. And it's like that th just like met. that level of detail is like it's unmatched. No, like no one's doing this. It's it's insane to someone someone say that there's no story here. There's an incredible amount of story. There might be too much story, and they said that he could have made three separate movies out of this. Yeah. Well, can I talk about the time like how I came to uh, Wes Anderson? No. All right, <laughs> no, 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 thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, please, please, regain. Uh, land, yeah, permission to land. Uh, so, um, I just remember watching uh, Comedy Central at like one thirty, um, like on a Saturday afternoon. Just had nothing better to do, and I just remember seeing Girl by Way of the Green Line bus like so vividly. And the reason I bring that story up is because that moment in that movie takes a minute and a half maybe just that moment where Richie is seeing um Gwyneth Paltrow Margot um and Alec Baldwin is narrating you know very sparsely and then the the Nico needle drop of um what is that called um I these days and bottom line is that was the first two minutes of oh, Anderson sounded like you were going somewhere good there right? you know and I think what like what Hold on, hold on. Go back to when you said those are the first two minutes of when I saw. Those are the first two minutes of when I saw Wes Anderson, and I, you know, thought that that was a whole story right there. I didn't need to see the rest of the movie to have to know what story I was watching, what part of the story I was watching. I was watching a man see someone that he loves and you know has loved since childhood. It was very clear in two minutes. So, um, his ability to tell a story almost instantly is uh is so impressive and it was the first thing that caught my attention like i could not turn my uh turn my eyes away as soon as i caught i was going to comedy central to probably watch south park i was 12 years old <laughs> i wasn't going to i wasn't looking for some all tourist you know uh existentialist crisis uh but there i was and uh i was hooked yeah that's um that's fascinating too because uh just kind of uh unrelated but like like Wes Anderson is so not a Comedy Central type of movie maker in the sense of like, no. like the like it's a he makes but comedies all funny yeah they're all very funny and he makes comedies but like typically what you would see is like an Anchorman or something like super broad, like Ace Ventura this would be big yeah like very broad comedies and his comedy is so subtle like this movie is very funny to me in a, a number of ways um, and uh, it's. I don't know. He's just he's just an incredibly talented guy. I don't know. I was like, I, like, like he has co-writers. Like, um, for most of his movies, um, he wrote this one. Uh, this, he wrote the stories with this one with um, Hugo Guinness, Jason Schwartzman, and uh, Roman Coppola, who he's worked with 
in a um, number of his movies before. But, you know, he wrote the screenplay. And it's just like his dialogue is so sharp and funny and smart. And yeah. like it's like 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 the level of detail he can um, like uh, I want to get back to the first section, but I'm just going to skip ahead to the third. Well, section. I, I do have a, a craft thing I want to talk about before we get into the first section, too. No, I just, just want to talk about quickly jump into the third section. Like Jeffrey Wright's character, right? He's a novelist, um, and at no point does it feel like it's in a guy attempting to sound like, oh, not a novelist, he's a writer. He's not, at no point when you listen to Wes Anderson's uh, like dialogue or his um, like uh, the, the narration, it never feels like it's, these feel like real pieces of writing that he's reading on screen. I mean, like he like he inter- incorporated into his screenplay rather than something that like a screen screenplay writer is attempting to sound like a writer. Does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah. Like he sounds like an accomplice. Like he sounds like this. These sound like fucking award winning articles that I would read in real life because it's that well done. Yeah, hundred percent. But getting into craft, you wanted to talk about. Yeah, the question I wanted to ask you guys was: um, Were you able to suss out like? any artistic necessity or reason for 99% of this being shot in 3-4 aspect ratio? Well, the the number one reason Wes Anderson does that is to usually does that now since it started with Grand Budapest. Um, Was Grand well, Budapest in 3-4? I haven't seen it in a while. of it uh, is because he that's how he denotes the time period because that's how it would have been shot in that period of time. Like, if you if you watch um, Grand Budapest, the, the, I think it's shot in three different aspect ratios, or maybe just be two, but, like, the stuff that's, like, taking place when Zero is supposed to be a kid yeah. is all three, four, and then all the stuff that's uh, shot, like, in the contemporary period when, like, uh, uh, Zero is the age of... Um, <laughs> Uh, F. Murray Abraham, like when he's that age, like like the when Jude Law's at the uh, at the hotel in the future, it's shot um, uh, in like widescreen because like gotcha. that's how he that's how he denotes like the time period. Because uh, like watching this, the few moments that were in sixteen nine, it seemed like were were like bigger moments, um, but they weren't necessarily in present time. They were still in time where it would have been shot like that. Yeah. So I'm wondering like. Because if the purpose of the whole thing being shot in three four was so that you could expand on this few key like big moments to like point out that they're big moments, it really does not seem worth it to me. What to switch cameras? To to have the whole thing like miss out on these big wide beautiful shots that they could have been of these awesome sets, you know, just just to put emphasis on moments that would have already felt big. I don't know. I was trying to wrap my head around that while I was watching it. See, I don't. I think, I think you're right in the sense that like it's not necessary. But I also think I like that he does that. Like, like none of what he does in any of his movies is necessary in the sense of like, like the sets that he builds, like or not, or like he has built, like you know the the level of production design, the level of like yeah. storytelling. Like, I don't think any of it is necessary. But I, I feel like with with all that effort into the production design and these fucking sets. It's like fill my whole screen up with that oh. shit, dude. <laughs> well, I'm surprised that you. I'm surprised that you're capturing the aspect ratio as the thing that you think you're being deprived of. Because to me, the thing I was surprised was that 60 or 70 percent of this movie is black and white. Um, and Wes Anderson's best, one of his most notable style, you know, stylizations is his, his color. palette, his color. Yeah, yeah but he, I thought that worked because it was usually during like flashbacks or. So like, it seemed my, like it seemed, point, it seemed purposeful. 
Well, I think the whole what I started to realize and was picking up on was that oh, every single year and period that he's doing is going to be some sort of direct French cinema French cinema um reference, right? So kind of to what Sean was saying, like talking about how that's how they would film it at that time. Yeah. Um and then specifically in France. Um, because I think I was coming into this movie and I, I was confronted with how little i know about french cinema as a whole yeah i was like oh french new wave you know the in the article too it's like that's obvious so you i mean you can see a lot of the the truffaut and godard you know like uh, handheld pov um you know tight space um framing and blocking um but there was other times where i was like oh kind of what you were saying like why is he filming it almost so um i'm trying to think of like what and they were capturing the kid in Article 3, and, like, the police are getting rounded up there. That's in that 3-4 um, aspect ratio, and it's, it's really uh, gritty film. I'm like, oh, he must have been using a camera from, like, 1940s there. Like, that's why that is coming out the way it is. So it kind of made me realize he's, he's probably—I am so far behind when it comes to uh, French cinema and more, which I think good art does. makes you want to learn more about the thing you don't know. So I, sure think, I, I think cut, you might be on to something there about um, each each style uh, mimicking or uh, paying homage to, to like a different specific movie. Because I did notice like there were uh, – uh, just because I'm so familiar with it, there's uh, an Umbrellas of Cherbourg scene. I knew that was coming. <laughs> and I thought there was a Belle de Jour looking scene in there too. Another Catherine Deneuve that's really good. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I think like Jiro's pointing out that – one of Wes's strongest suits is like his color palette, and I think, I think, him shooting so much of this movie in black and white only serves to strengthen the color when it pops back up on the screen. I think every moment when he switches from black and white into yeah. color, like really calls attention to that moment and the 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 production design and the like all of that stuff. I think it like when it was in color, it was so on point that I didn't feel deprived. At any point of it, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, th- yeah. I feel like it strengthened that. It's like he's like he. I think he's playing with the fact that he knows his color is so strong. Like in all of his movies, it's so recognizable. Like, um, so I think when when you're deprived of it, but you don't feel deprived of it necessarily. But like when he when he when it snaps back into color, like even like it'll happen two times within the same thirty seconds. He'll go back, and it's like it just like it it's used as a like a a, a tool to emphasize whatever moments, and it always feels like I don't know. I, 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 it always worked on me every time. It, like it, it it switched back and forth. It it felt like earned. Well, there's three forms of mastery that he's showing, and I think I just want to say for you know the audience sort of thing. From my understanding is you can't really film something with a black and white camera and then just have a color camera right next to it. And those were different shots and they were spliced together. And that's unbelievably difficult to reenact, you know, to find where the cutting point is and then reenact it and redo it in color. Um, It's a totally different staging and light. Think about the lighting alone, right? You would have to have two different total lighting setups that the cameras wouldn't read. They would either ruin one or the other. So I think it shows the mastery of, you know, being a director. Two, it shows his mastery of both art forms his his ability to light black and white was is just as good of a color. And then also finally, it basically retroactively says, hey, I could have been shooting all my movies in black and white and been just as good. Color is just my cherry on top. This is something that, uh, you know, adds. I'm using... R.I.P. You were saying, uh, you cut out when you said I'm using... Uh, I'm using what? That's the last thing we heard is when you said I'm using. 
I have no idea where why I would be saying I'm using. I was talking about Wes Anderson most. Sounded like a confession to me, but we're gonna get you some help after. The show. <laughs> no, you were Please. saying you were speaking as Wes Anderson. You was like, I'm using all these tools or something like that. But um, it's like towards the end of the sentence. I'm using the, I'm using these tools with intention. Um, and it it basically retroactively says like, hey, I am using color with intention. Um, and that is a profound statement from a director, basically, because it's like, hey, I've mastered this component of, of, of cinema. That's a pretty, you know, bold statement to say. And I think he, you know, de- demonstrates it throughout the movie. Well, that's what I wanted to say. One of the things I said, I wanted to say about him. And then like, we, we after this, you can just get talking about each section of the movie, what we liked about it, what, what was strong about it. But, um, I feel like the Wes Anderson has like every tool in his bag. Like, like he's like, cause like people often talk about him as a craftsman in terms of like, um, how he like you know, the production design and, like, you know, framing. But it's, like, this guy always knows where to place the camera. He always knows how to... The, the, the scenes are always lit perfectly. Um, He always... uh Like, he, he he has one of the best grasps for story. He has one of the best... He's one of the best casters. Like, um, he has some of the best casts in some of his movies. He, um... Like, I don't... I feel like, I feel like there's, there's really any, not a single thing I feel like he's... La- like, his music is always great, whether it's, a, whether it's the soundtracks for something like Royal Tenenbaums or even something like fucking uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox or just the score like I think he's just like one of the, like I think he's like because his because he um occupies a space of he's not like a pop filmmaker in the traditional sense of like um he's making something for everyone and he's not doing like uh like he 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 because he, he crafts his own world he's looked at as kind of like a um like a a curiosity like a like a like a like a yeah but he, like I think he's truly one of the best filmmakers working, like like bar none. Like I like I don't think it's like he's just very good at this thing. I think he has has every tool in his bag. Like I think I think I don't think he's like he's like he's lacking in any fucking sort of way. Like like some of these some of the camera moves in this. Like going to the first section of the movie, right? Benicio to the first section. There's a scene when um Benicio is the first. It's the when he's gonna first start painting, and they go he he goes to join the arts and crafts uh. Um, club in the yeah. prison, and uh, Simone, the guard, makes him speak in front of all the other uh, um, inmates. Uh, like just kind of like introduce himself, and he's like, "I don't want to do this, whatever." And he cuts from a wide shot of him and Simone to uh, a, like a very tight shot of all the the um, the other inmates, and like the cra- the claustrophobia of that scene, where it's like like it, it really gets across like how uncomfortable it would be to stand in front of a room full of fucking prisoners Inmates, yeah. and, and, and have to like do something as simple as like basically like an AA introduction, like, hi, my name is, and you know, whatever. It's like, I don't know. He's just so good. And then like when he's telling that story, when, when, um, Benicio, uh, I guess his character's name is Moses. Uh, when he's telling that story about like how he came to be there and what, what, what he thinks like, like if he, if he doesn't uh, stop drinking mouthwash and shit, he's going to fucking kill himself. Like, the the cuts to each of the inmates' faces as they're taking in the story is like it's just excellent. He has every camera movement is motivated, which I think is all you could hope for. I feel like all the story elements, the plot elements are motivated, which again shows a master of the writing to kind of just like you know re echo what you just said. Um, to me, the one of his most amazing gifts is staging. I mean, he shows depth. He is a photographer mixed with a theatrical director. You know, it's I don't know if this belongs in a, you know, in a frame or if it 
belongs on a stage sometimes. Yeah. Um, and he just he his staging shows depth. Um, whether he wants it to or not, he can background and foreground are completely in his control. Whether he wants that to be blurry, you know, forced perspective, all all the good uh, tricks and whistles, and he just he does them at will. Um, I think maybe the one thing that will be his attraction. happy with the uh, naming the town on weed but uh, i think his work his body of work um is all melancholic and that's probably his biggest attraction um and to continue on a, a nice rant i think the one to any detractor wes anderson do you think he's not executing what he sees his vision so if even if you hated the movie even if you hated the story if you hate everything about his movies do you think he's not executing his vision 100 percent? because i feel like at the very least you could walk out of everyone should agree this guy is doing what he wants and that's yeah. amazing absolutely and I, I think uh that's one i saw someone on, on twitter say something along, along those lines is like whether you like his movies or not you cannot deny that he's an incredibly talented filmmaker and incredibly um in control of what he like uh his vision and um like because one of the biggest uh the criticisms of Wes Anderson over the years has been like like they use the term like twee or like uh kitschy or like um like uh like you know like the Brooklyn hipster people feel like is, has been born out of Wes Anderson movies but it's like that's not his fault you know what I mean like it's like yeah. and like because like just because people wanted to imitate like first of all there is not a single director who's like I don't think has tried to imitate director Anderson and done it successfully like and, and I, I, I've cool. never noticed anyone even try at all as I'm saying but like uh but even if there was like there's so many like there's like uh there's a lot of um like in the 90s there were a lot of like uh Tarantino uh, imitators yes. and very few did it successfully I think Guy Ritchie was somebody who kind of tapped into a lot of what Tarantino was doing well it's not it's definitely not Tarantino level but he made good movies and it, it's uh, in terms Maybe some a lot of the stylistic choices that um, Tarantino uh, like kind of reintroduced into cinema. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anyone could even attempt to do what Wes Anderson does because it's so specific. It's such a, a pure vision of like th like this comes to be because of it's this guy who had all these experiences that he had, and there's no one who could even try to attempt to like do what he does. And I and I love that about that. Like I I I, I, I that's why one of the things I think I think he's my favorite director is because like he exists totally in his own space. Like we need that there to be this guy who could make these types of movies in this way. And I don't want anyone to be like I don't want him to like like it would be cool if he made like a. I'm just gonna throw out James Bond. I don't, I don't necessarily want to see this. I'm just saying, like, if he made like some kind of like uh, more mainstream picture of like uh, where it's like he's working for a studio and he's like working with a a, a franchise we know or a character we know. Yeah, I guess that would be cool. But I don't want to see that ever. I want to just see, like I want to see these stories. I want to see a story about a fucking yeah. uh, a certain people in you want to see just do whatever they want. Yeah, like this. It's it's it's. I think it's a like whether like I don't think all of his movies have been like I think Darjeeling Limited is probably the movie like most people would say it was his like his biggest. Uh, weak point in his filmography. Even yeah. then, it's, it's not particularly bad. It's just it's, it's just not it's just not as strong as the other. And it's, yeah. it's also it faces the criticism of like the cultural appropriation thing. It's like this guy is making a movie about India and it's not about Indian people. But that aside, if that's your worst movie, one like you're an incredible. Is that cultural appropriation or should uh, make a movie about? Not cultural appropriation, cultural in insensitivity. But it's also oh, okay. Three self-indulgent white guys who are completely, who completely don't care about anyone else but themselves. <clears throat> so I feel like it is, in a way, completely on message. Though no, it's, it's on like, message, hey, but it also is one of those things where it's like just because something is on message and don't doesn't mean 
Yeah. If you like, you know, if you're calling attention to the thing that you're doing, that doesn't listen. You're still doing that thing. You know what I mean? Like, even though that's the point, mm-hmm. you people. Could, like, and, uh, but it's I, critical of them. It's yes. What I'm saying is, it's critical of those characters, right? But in our world, he's still making a movie largely set in India that is not about Indian people, and Indian people are only ever. Um, uh, used as props for these white characters. Now, yes, that is the point of the movie, but as an Indian person, you're like, how the fuck are you going to make a movie about India and the, the most we do is like are in service to the white people in this story? You know what I mean? And again, like I could see like like the, the point, that is the very point of the movie, but that doesn't make it sense. Like there are still Indian actors who could have like, you know, had a chance to act in this guy's movie and, it, and the only, th- only thing they get to do is be like a bellhop on a train or whatever is I think is the point. Um, but again, uh, that aside, my point was if Darjeeling Limited is probably the one uh weak point of this guy's uh like you know universe, universally agreed upon like okay this is not, this is like probably your weakest effort, um but if that's your worst movie it's like you're doing fucking great like you know what I mean you're fucking you're fucking really good and I would love I just love to see like uh like each of his stories is so incredibly unique and uh like you can like. I think it's a great thing that you can identify a Wes Anderson movie when you see it. You know what I mean? Like people make that as a criticism, like, oh, it just looks it just looks like a Wes Anderson movie. Like that's yeah. an incredible thing that you were able to of among the thousands of directors in the world, that the moment you see a frame of this thing, I know this guy made it. Is is it like why would it work? It's exactly the thing I was saying was missing from as much as I like him, uh Denny Vinu when I was watching Dune, how I wanted there to be like a signature aesthetic. Yeah. That doesn't look like someone else could have made it. Yeah. Like Wes Anderson has that more than almost anyone. I think he's yeah. I think if he's not more than anyone. He might be yeah, the like this the these like in terms of like a signature style. I think he's uh cause, from like because like a lot of people have a signature style. Like you know, there's certain shots that a lot of different directors have, like the Spielberg Warner or you know um like the trunk shots from uh Tarantino movies yeah. or, or like if you you could show any frame of Kill Bill. And probably guess it's a Tarantino movie. Yeah, but like I'm thinking about it. Like you could just show like a still image of a, a Wes Anderson movie. Like, oh, that's Wes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like the like it's just it's just an incredible achievement, and uh, I think it's great. I want to talk about this first section of the movie. I want to talk about um, Adrian Brody. Right? Um, he is an incredibly talented actor who doesn't actually like. Hear he me now. You say what? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Respect your neck. Uh, that, that, yeah, that monologue he goes on about respecting his neck. Yeah. Really um, moving. Um, famed Jamaican actor, uh, Adrian Brody. Um, incredibly talented actor, Academy Award. Well, did he win the Academy Award for a pianist? Certainly. Yeah, nom- yeah he did. Um, and I think in recent years, I think the only person who's been able to use him effectively has been Wes Anderson. Like I, every time he pops up in a Wes Anderson movie, I love the character he's playing. It's it's so he, like Wes Anderson is yeah. such an incredible. Wes Anderson makes him somebody unlikable, which is what he should always be playing. Yes. Um. <laughs> no. Absolutely. I think I think he understands like he he taps he has that skill where he can tap into like what is very exceptional about uh, an actor. And um and 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 play with it in fun like like um even what he does with Bill Murray like I mean like Bill Murray largely mm-hmm. has, it was been like a you know as a comedic actor he's a comedic actor in these movies as well but like he finds a like a a, a pathos and like a um a warmth with Bill Murray that like especially early in his career was not at all present I mean obviously he had something like Lost in the Translation one, the one I'm the most impressed by is his use of Ed Norton uh, another because... excellent yes. Because I feel like in every movie I see Ed Norton that's not Wes Anderson, I think Ed Norton is a psycho murderous 
homicidal sociopath that is ready to kill anybody and everybody in his path. Yeah, that's that's more impressive to me when than he's like in a using the movie. Than, than using Adrian Brody as an unlikable person because Adrian Brody is unlikable, but making is Ed unlikable, yeah. make, fine, making Ed Norton like a warm character. Yeah, but he doesn't move on his kingdom. Is just and 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 uh, Grand Budapest. Yeah, is just incredible. Like it's like he just like like he seems like a like a a nice guy. You know what I mean? And for all the things you hear in Hollywood about Ed Norton about being like that kind of actor director. I wonder how that plays on set because he has a lot of those characteristics like Owen Wilson, Jason Schwartzman, and I'm probably a bunch of other people he works with that are, you know, people who have received writing credits on movies before. I wonder where Ed Norton fits in that hierarchy. Like, well, is I, Wes, like, allow him to speak or is he like, you are going to do what I tell you to do and that is Just it. as knowing if you watch a Wes Anderson movie, you could tell he's in full control of everything. So it's got to be a mm-hmm. matter of just like, him thinking there's something to be learned from working with Wes and showing deference to him. Cause I couldn't see him like really piping up. Like, well, and I think it's, it's kind of uh piggybacking off what you're saying. It's, it's because Wes Anderson, there's certain directors, right? And it's almost always like the, you know, the, the best directors working. If you're working in a, uh, Kobe, uh, if you're working in a Tarantino movie, if you're working in a Paul Thomas and Anderson movie, if you're working in a, uh, working in a Wes Anderson movie, like that top tier directors, they have crafted a specific style. So when you decide I'm going to work in this guy's movie, you know what you're signing up for. Like, yeah. like you're, you're agreeing to give yourself over to the storytelling that this guy, to this guy's vision. It can't be, it's not going to be as collaborative as something like some kind of like a, um, uh, like uh, as like a workman kind of like Sony's work for hire director, Hulk. yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's it's gonna be like okay, I envision you as a like a a, a fucking like smirking cat burglar. I envision you as like a fucking a camp counselor, like uh, the head of a, a scout troop in Moonrise Kingdom. I see you as like um the kind of the, the the nicest guy in the fucking basically the nicest guy in the German army in uh grand budapest hotel yeah and like you have to accept that to play this like you know what i mean like i don't i don't even, i don't even think it necessarily has to be like a lay down the law type of thing it's just like like you know what you're signing up for i think it is what i'm saying it's cool to see him work with the first times too on the contrast with adrian brody too like uh, benicio i don't think he's worked with benicio before or um or jeffrey that, Wright. What, yeah um or jeffrey Wright, or who is the uh wonderful guard lady i don't know how to say her name so do. Yeah, like, you know, just another dose of her, which was just incredible. She's, like, quickly becoming my favorite actress right now. Um, Total recency bias, but, uh, yeah, no, I think the it was kind of interesting to see how willing I was to let go of the story. And what I mean by that is each of these articles could have definitely been their own movie, in my opinion. I would have loved to see a full Wes Anderson um of each of these articles but i'm so glad he didn't and i think in the end i defer to the master who has poured over this script probably for decades i'm sure he's played it out each one i'm sure he's written it out each one to be a full movie length if he wanted to and decided to do it this way i think you know uh it's hard it's hard to have that many good stories in one movie it's really difficult i don't know i felt like each one landed yeah and i felt the weakest one was the second one but we're, we'll talk about that soon yeah, even like like I want to say like like you were saying, um, it's hard enough to have one good story in in a movie, you know, for a lot of directors, for a lot of you know, what I mean, like to have three like pretty compelling stories, uh, in in one one frame, like a well, one you know, one fucking uh package is 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 excellent. I just want to point out some other things I liked about uh, the first uh, the Benicio section. I love the scene when um 
they're I guess this is the first time they had sex and they're laying in like uh, the laundry room. They're laying down like like uh like with their heads next oh, to each yeah, other. Oh, yeah, head, like, and, uh, uh, heads next to each other, feet away. Yeah, yeah. and um, he tells her, uh, you know, I love you. He's about to he tell her. They say at the same time, he's like, I don't, I love you. She says, I don't love you at the same time. And he's like, how do you know? Like, already you don't know? Yeah. You already know that you don't love me? But I love, like, the way that's, like, it's it's a very romantic framing of that that that, that shot. I think it's um, it's an excellent job of, like, like, like making you kind of have a warmth in like love for like uh, a guard and a murderous painter in a in a prison. I, I don't know. It's it's just excellent. I love the shot. Um, I love the kind of the little gag where um, he's wants he wants to kill himself and he's like uh he's in his sitting in the electric chair and he's like uh like throw the switch and then she like throws it for half a second just to like jolt him and just like is this what you want? Like I'll fucking like I just electrocute you just a little bit to show you like this could this will suck. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. don't want to die. Um, I like the uh the speech Adrian Brody gives about. How he tests uh, modern artists. I love by that. having them draw realistic stuff first, which was like to me is almost it's not as good, but it's almost as as good of a a, a take on just explaining um, abstract art as Ken Cov- Cosgrove does in Mad Men. Yeah, um, which is one of my favorite scenes in that series. Um, I don't know. He does a really good job there. I love that. For that reason, and also it's like again what I was saying about Wes Anderson, like he shows a grasp of the of the um, the subject matter of his movies. You know, like, mm-hmm. like like a lot of people would have like an art dealer and an artist in a movie and not really understand like the world of uh of art, like like how like yeah. art um um art like when Killmonger works. breaks into that museum, you weren't gonna hear no shit like that. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it's, and it's like, it's like, it's, it, and it, it's based in like reality. Like, uh, that's one of the things they talk about. Like Picasso, he talks about like, uh, like I had to learn how to do all this other shit in, in order to be able to do this other shit. You know what I mean? Like to do, to like to do the fucking like abstract wacko shit that I do now. I can, I can fucking like paint a, a, uh, like a portrait level quality picture of you sitting in front of me right now. But why would I do that? You know what we I mean? have cameras now. Yeah, exactly. That's I mean that's what that's what like that's that's kind of like the idea of the, the uh like modern art is that like yeah. like there's cameras now. Yeah, there's that's like the whole there's, that's there's, how it was yeah. There's no it. reason to fucking why would I paint uh, a a picture of a fucking of a cafe when it's like somebody can just take a picture of that cafe and it's better. <laughs> it's it's um so I, I, I love I love the, I love the grasp of um uh those worlds i love uh, like i said i love uh, adrian brody's performance i love that he had henry winkler in there just like just to not even really do anything it's just like a like just, yeah. just to like add oh. a little texture to the that character the other brody speech was great was when he was trying to get parole for him and talk, oh my talking God, so about funny. like how good he is as an artist and like shouldn't there be a double standard yes. for this <laughs> man whereas part of me who like I don't know anyone anyone who has like a, a a relationship with art. There's like part of you that even though you know what's wrong, sometimes it's just like there's a certain artist who's problematic, but your work you enjoy their work there you enjoy is that so well in your head. that you you do go through that in your head of like oh there should be a double standard for this person. Yeah, like, I understand why there isn't, but it's like can't we just do it for this guy? You yeah. know what I mean? Um, I think that's excellent. I love that they I love that it doesn't work. I love that he tries that and they're like. The fuck are you talking about, man? Yeah. Like, like, no. Because you know what? During the years when that took place, you could have convinced him of that by making a different argument, just of how important 
he is to like the world, but without outright saying, doesn't he deserve a double? Yes. Set? Like the minute you say the silent part out loud, you just lose. Well, I think I think that's one of the excellent things about that character in in that, in that that bit of writing is that it shows because like, like up to that point, Agent Brody is like is an expert in in navigating the world. You know, yeah. I mean, he, he I mean he's able to fucking like. Turn a a a incarcerated a prisoner into a world famous artist based off one painting, um. But like, I love that he he falters in that moment because it's like he's not good at this. Like even when he's like um, when Benicio, well, they were saying up until he found that one painting, he wasn't good at uh, uh curating artists either. Yeah, um, and he's like uh, when he says um. When he starts that speech, when he's like, uh, Benicio is kind of just like digging a bigger hole for himself. He's like, uh, he had it yeah. coming to him. And then he's like, uh, is there a section here where we can kind of, someone can speak up uh, and say like. Like a wedding. Like a wedding. Like, it's just such a funny uh, line. Um, I love the, I love Tilda, Tilda Swinton. I love that Tilda Swinton just goes out of her way to just play the most fucking like, like uh, I think a big picture they were talking about like, like she, she, she must have like a thing in her contract where she's like, I can't, I won't do this movie unless I have to sit in and make up for six hours. Like she always yeah. just goes like batshit. I love that shit I about I love her. the scene where she accidentally uh, put the naked picture of herself so on the projector. Yeah. Like one because it was funny, and two because it was very nice to see Tilda Swinton naked. I love Tilda Swinton. I love to see her naked. I love to see her uh, uh, fucking up and and revealing that she um got Arthur killed in Michael Clayton. Uh, I, I love to see her talking about Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, do you guys think that that slip in the presentation was an accident? Because I think it was on purpose. Um, if you look at her, the dress that she was wearing, that nightgown she was wearing, it was orange and yellow. Um, and if you notice, the dress she was wearing on stage was also that orange and yellow and pink. And oh, like she coordinated the nude? The frescoes that... Because, yeah, because if you look at her standing in front of the frescoes at the end, it's all the same palette as what he uh, what he paints. So she's wearing that dress on purpose. So that the one is it a quiz? Either she's obsessed with that palette just because of that artist or she more more likely who seems like a pretty organized and uh, um, pretty organized woman. She seems like she, uh, you know, color coordinated a, that, that nude. Wait, I, I think she's it's a flasher, baby. I think it's also on purpose, too, because um who the fuck keeps their nudes in the same fucking like around the, the folders the, uh, of the picture that they're going to use in a slideshow on a professional presentation? Like, of course you slip that in there on purpose. Yeah. Um, any other notes on this section? Uh, I loved, um, I love the, uh, the, the kind of freeze frame section when, um, when the, the inmates, I love when Asian Brody runs over to the door and he's like, uh, like he's about to try to negotiate with the the inmates. He's like, "How the fuck you guys get here?" And he, uh, he's like, "What do I do?" And he's like, "Lock the door." And he locks the door, and then they kick down the like they <laughs> the tear, wall. Yeah, they <laughs> they just tear down the whole wall, and then they rush in, and then like he does that kind of freeze frame shot where he shows like it was kind of like uh it was one of those visual gags similar to like when a cartoon character cuts a slice of pie, and then takes the giant rest of it yeah from yeah around the whole, there. yeah 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 like he locked the door and they kicked down everything <laughs> around but the, the door, door. yeah. <laughs> And I love if, if you go ahead, Gerald. The freeze frames too, like they're actually not freeze frames; they're actually the actors holding still, and like the props are yeah. being held up and stuff like that, which is you know like a theater, um, which he does multiple times. And I thought that was funny. I thought that was a criticism. He, him talking back to the critics, basically saying like, "Hey, even my action is still, you know, even my my most action packed scenes are going to be still shot." Yeah, you want to see a so diorama? I'll give a, you a fucking diorama. Exactly. And even when the, in the third scene, um, in the third um, act, let's just say when the 
when they're the the commissioner is shooting out at the police and stuff like that or whoever kidnapped the kids they're basically just guys standing with guns shooting completely still no one's ducking no one's moving everyone's just standing completely still so i just thought that was a great like uh comment wes anderson basically saying fuck you i know what i'm doing and you know relax if you want to if you want a michael bay you know transformers explosion cacophony go watch a michael bay movie or go watch a michael mann movie go pick a different film to watch i just hate that every movie has to be perfect and it has to answer to every critic's you know whistle and uh whimsy you know it's just crazy it's like a, a, movies are supposed to be one thing they're supposed to be a chapter in the in the writer's you know Whole well, that's book always my instead of you know that's always my yeah. biggest pet peeve on on critiques is uh people judging movies based on what they wanted it to be rather than what the director wanted it to be yeah, and rather than what it actually is you that's know what I mean the that's like my biggest thing when I because there's so many people on Rotten Tomatoes who do it like that like the <laughs> Armin White when he the when funniest he, critic in the world uh, compared fucking when he got mad at Get Out because it wasn't as funny as the, quote, ingenious little man. Little man. And it's like, come on, dude. It wasn't supposed to be that. Yeah. It, and it, it never it never pretended it was going, like, it never marketed itself. Because sometimes a movie is marketed a certain way. And, and again, that's not the director's fault. That's the, often the studio. But sometimes a movie is marketed a certain way and then you ex- have ex- expectations and it doesn't turn out to be that. But, like, there's no part of the marketing of Get Out that, like, even slightly indicated that it was going to be some sort of, like, like like over the top ridiculous comedy Wayne's brother comedy like so no. it's uh it, it's an insane criticism one last thing I want to say about this uh section was um I lo- yeah I love the freeze frame I love it kind of like the implied action is like he tells you like oh um like uh Moses like received the commendation and was like let out of prison for like uh um you know like saving the lives of six guards and twenty two uh attendees but like you don't show it you just show that kind of like that that's an excellent shot the the like the, the fake freeze frame it slides all the way down to the other end of the corridor you see him and he kind of gears up to start fighting and then you cut to like afterwards um and then the final thing is i just love the idea that uh, like it's, it's an excellent character moment is like him painting frescoes instead of uh painting on um like uh some sort of transportable um yes uh, medium that they could, they could. He would like. He's like. He's like. It's kind of a fuck you, but also like. It's one of those things where it's like. It might be a fuck you, but it's also like that's just how artists work. Like sometimes this is this is what I wanted to make, and I'm not gonna make it easy for you to yeah. sell. And that could could even be meta commentary from Wes Anderson on the people who fucking want him to make a different kind of thing, and it's just like like. Yeah, you gotta meet me at my level. I'm not meeting yeah, you where is, you want me to meet you. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to do. This is what I wanted to do. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Oh. That emotion when Adrian Brody um, embraces Benicio and says, like, you did a good job. Like, if you're going to tell me. Shame. This would be great if we were doing this on purpose, like tricking Jiro into coming on the show and then muting everything he said. Yeah. Like, (laughs) as a prank. You were saying. Oh, so I say if you can tell me that. Uh, Wes Anderson doesn't have emotion in his film and that embrace from Adrian Brody to Benicio Del Toro, him just saying you did a good job. I mean, what more do you need him to prove to you that he can display emotion? Because I was moved by that. When he said good job, I was like, wow, that was an extremely compassionate and emotional moment, Wes Anderson. So again, I just think people see what they want to see when they watch movies. They take their preconceived notions yeah. and then they just bring them to the movie theater with them. Well, see, and, yeah, it seems you know, like cut and pasted from reviews of other movies of him you know um exactly uh, yeah I, I i i totally agree i love that moment i thought it was, it was so warm and uh 
like it it was it was it was honest. You know what I mean? Like like because at that at that point, Adrian Brody was being like huge blustery. Like I'm you know I'm the fucking brilliant art dealer that yeah. put this whole thing together. And like like yes, this is an excellent piece of work. But fuck that. If well, I can't he had even... an over top over the top reaction to losing all that money. But at the end of the day, like this is it's amazing. The whole thing started because he's such a fan of this dude's yeah, work. Exactly. So after they get in their hilarious wheelchair fight, it's just so good. And the they get it all out in the. In the open, they air it out, and then it's just like, uh, now I can appreciate. Yeah, this. you know what? At the end of the day, you fucking nailed it, man. Like, great job. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Like, yeah, like I can figure this other shit out. You did it. Um, let's move on to section two of this film. Um, All right, I'd like to sum up section two with the funniest line I think probably in this movie is when Timothy Chalamet said, "Please turn away. I feel shy about my new muscles." Yes, very <laughs> funny. I love that line. Um. I love that section. Again, it's one of those things where uh, just first I want to point out uh, another instance of just Wes Anderson just having like just the most incredible casting. Like I could just have Christoph Waltz in here for 12 seconds just because who doesn't want to be in one of my movies? Yeah. If there's anything that I didn't like about this movie, it's like seeing people like Christoph Waltz and Elizabeth Moss and not getting to see them really work. Do more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say I, I'm a little bit mad at Timothy Chalamet for not existing. About 10 years ago, he would have done tremendous Ooh, for my ego in high Chiro, school. you would have cleaned up, boy. <laughs> I would, I would, as a as a long-haired, frail white boy with a thin mustache, I, I and in both the bespectacled and unbespectacled category, he would have done me much more favor than uh, quote unquote Daniel Radcliffe. Right? Oh, you have glasses and you're a white guy. You must look like Daniel Radcliffe. So uh, I would <laughs> yeah. wish I had Timothy Chalamet Damn, yeah. to play you off fucking, of. You fucking missed your <laughs> fucking window. And yeah. Oh, instead it was Tobey Maguire and Daniel Radcliffe. But uh, you know, that's these are the things that you live with and you grow up and you just you're just happy for the next generation. That you yeah, know, yeah. You don't want to fucking live with regrets. You just got to be happy for the people who get the benefit from it now going forward. Absolutely, absolutely. And thanks, Wes, for for making it happen. And thanks for you know letting me be a proxy of having a hookup with Francis McDormand. Kind of a dream come true. So, uh, real, really, uh, really thankful for that opportunity. Yeah, I thought it was weird how like believable their little affair played off me considering like the big difference in age and like just who they were. I love that. They just had like chemistry together. Yeah. Well, it's like it, the, the chemistry works, the, the, the kind of, um, the scenario works for me in the sense of like, uh, yeah, sometimes, uh, uh, a, a writer does get too close to the subject. I also like it on, in, in like in the real world sense of like 99, like they, you don't actually see them like, um, getting you know terribly intimate but 99 percent of the time when you see something like this in a movie it's an older actor with paired with a younger actress like yeah. a super mm-hmm. like, that like it's um it's like a may december but like the flip-flopped I, I love that they did it this way where it's like um like let let fucking francis mcdormand get the fucking touch on a little boy body you know what i mean like well i'm a, i am a little bit worried that like wes anderson's preoccupation with uh sexual taboos for lack of a better term whether that's you know dating your your adopted sister or you know underage love and running away and getting married at 12 or you know he seems to be like fascinated with those type of uh 12 year olds fantasizing about running away and getting married isn't taboo i mean they literally got married though like they actually got married and then they also danced like semi-nude on a beach you know so he's he likes to play with the like is this actually socially acceptable a lot and i i'm just worried that as a guy that kind of is as symmetrical and stylistic as kubrick that he's going to try to remake lolita and i'm 
it's going to ruin his career. It's like, dude, stay away from it. Stay <laughs> off the hard stuff. In terms of um, career parallels, in terms of like a artistic um, craft, yes, there, but I, I, there's no risk of him ever making Lolita because he's he, it's too uninteresting. Like even there's not enough. He would like it would be, if he remade Lolita, it would have thirty thousand more details than the 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 current version does because he's like this isn't interesting enough on its own. Like just the sexual taboo isn't enough. I need Lolita to be like a fucking. A one-eyed baker uh, in a fucking like you know what I mean like it, it has to there have to be so many more details to it. It's a it's a Mendel's uh it's like a Mendel's like pre uh, prequel or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, and I didn't I didn't think the Moonrise Kingdom shit was handled with any particular horniness. No, it I, just it just felt no, like not at all, not at all. Self discovery on the on the kids' parts. Yes. But For I've sure. heard that criticism before, and I think it's because people are uncomfortable with the idea that you would that scene when they're dancing, like you know, half like it's like, like I understand like people's hesitance with it, but because like like there are fucking there's Roman Polanski out there, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's like, but at the end of the day, it's like this I is. I thought they did a good job. I thought of it was not very delicate. It. Yeah, it I thought seemed it was innocent and nice. And because it's it's a real thing that would happen at that age. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It, it, like, like you said, both of you said it didn't feel sexual at all. It felt um. It felt awkward. It felt, it felt real and true. Like it's like that's that's that is like that would be enticing, like and fun for that age without being like horny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, no, they they don't even know what they need to be doing. They don't even know what they're kind of suggesting. They don't know. You know, they're just trying to express their love for each other in whatever ways they know how to. So that's like you know, their whatever extent of romance they know, which is you know maybe dancing on the beach, running away together, getting married. They they take full advantage of all those, you know, and because they, you know, I would not to assume, but I feel like they don't know sex or don't have sexual education in the 1960s on whatever island they're on. Maybe that's why, they, you know, it's not sexual because they don't even know they don't. That's not even an option in their head. You know, they, they just think kissing and hugging and spending the night together is being together. And that's what's so beautiful about it, because that really is what real love is. It's not, you know, um, rom- uh, horny fucking what do you call it? Um I just can't think of a superficial love, you know, where you're just attracted to the person sexually, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, getting back to this section of the movie, I loved uh, the ridiculous framing of, like, them playing, like, the kind of all big decisions are, are, are solved by a chess match, like, from the school yeah. thing to the, like, playing chess across town with the mayor, with the basically the fate of the city at stake. I love that. Um, I love uh, I love Chalamet's hair, uh, that he looks like a fucking, like, crackpot uh chess player from uh, that period of time i love um yo that yellow scene in this yes fucking wes anderson's done some gorgeous shit before but that yellow scene uh was like the most beautiful thing i've probably seen by him i couldn't i just wanted to look at it forever it was it was it was it was gorgeous. In I that love, cafe, I love the um the play within the movie when it's um the was Mitch Mitch uh, telling his story about why he defected from the the um the the military. Yeah, and it's all the soldiers in the the barracks and yeah, and you see like the the um their supervisor or whatever go by and then turns into like the window with the snowfall yeah. behind it. Again, that, one of the that's the, another though. That's another like Anderson trope. I don't know if you guys have picked up on it. Like he always is doing stage productions. Like even from Rushmore, you know, starting yeah. off the bat. I, I'm a little bit worried that he is actually going to try to be a like he's going to waste some of his prime years actually going to theater 
Not saying it's going to go go bad, but all the theater that he always does. Yo, is if Margo Wes Anderson and, made a musical, I would pay whatever I had to to go see it. I feel like it would be incredibly boring because every theatrical production he puts on stage, from Rushmore all the way to uh, Fred's Dispatch, they're all like incredibly mundane and boring. And you could tell that someone who aspires to be a theatrical writer but isn't actually a good theatrical writer. You know what I mean? Now, I thought, the, I thought the, the the section in this movie. Well, one, I think the one in Rushmore is not supposed to be good because it's a little kid, um, uh, a little kid putting on doing play- apocalypse now. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like it's like it's a this kind. It it couldn't be good, but I thought the one in this one is effective. I think I think like the like the framing of it, like using the kind of um the uh limitations of theater to like to to express like the the, the guy jumping out of his window. Um, and then like the him repeating the line like uh, he's still not moving. He's still. I, th- I thought that was effective. I, I liked yeah. it a lot. Remember when you like said like when he introduced the guard in ninety seconds? I felt like they did five minutes on that theatrical play, or maybe three minutes on that theatrical play for a character that was way less important. So I felt like he did more explanation and got less return because like I feel like you could have removed that character in that plot point, and pretty much the that part two would have continued on the same exact way. So yeah. that's why. I really felt it was kind of unmotivated, but hey. See, swing, I thought the motivation was because it's that character telling that story to his uh, the other the other kids, and like so. Then when it cuts back from the play to the present day at their like little clubhouse at that coffee shop, and they're all kind of like crying and clapping for him because like it's 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 his expression of what happened to him. You know what I mean? So it's framed mm-hmm. in in sort of a fantastical way mm-hmm. it, it, um, for two reasons. One, because as a as a kid, you won't you're not gonna be able to tell that as cleanly as like an adult, like you don't have the emotional capacity for it. But two, because it's told as in the future, Francis McDormand produced that play. Uh, I see, I see. I thought that was from the perspective of the of the kid who burned the card. I thought the kid who burned the card was the one who wrote that play. No, 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 I no. She, yeah, in the future, she uh, she co-writes a play with him, I guess, uh, uh, based on that period of his life when he okay, how he yeah, defects. see that's where. I, it definitely bears multiple reasons. I'm saying like, what is one of you're not paying attention, it yeah. kind of just slips past you. Yeah, even um, if you are paying attention, it might slip past. Yeah, you. I'm saying, I even yeah, because there's so much other stuff to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's crazy. I. Uh, um, this was the weakest section, though. I mean, right? I don't know if is that a unanimous agreement. I feel like it's you know a toss up between first and third. Then that this one was the, I, the weakest of them all. I I don't know. It might be my favorite. It, 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 That's this is what we're podcasting for, Stas. That's why I love it. Tell me why it's your favorite. I'll tell you why I hate it. Well, the the for one, just the um the uh the theme of it with the youth versus experience and how it mirrors like today, like like Twitter kids have all the passion and want to change the world, but don't have like the tact or the functional skills in society to make it happen. You know what they're doing, yeah. And how that was reflected in the mm. one of the hottest women I've ever seen, uh, Lena Kodri versus Frances McDormand, and uh, the way they played uh, off of each other and set with like that 60s uh, uh, unrest Pastiche. that took place oh. in France. Um, yeah, man, I, I just loved it. I thought they nailed everything in this one. I'm gonna respond by saying I totally agree with you. I really like that perspective. I, I didn't, I didn't do the, I didn't think of the Twitter connection to like this generation. And when you think of that, I, I think that's an amazing parallel. Um, that you know, kind of gives me a new perspective on that that section. I think the one thing I was down on it was I felt this was the most given, um, 
Wes Anderson, if that makes any sense. Whereas I could, I, I almost knew what was going to happen the entire time. Where the other two, I needed to see it play out. This yeah. middle one, you know, he's very inspired by French New Wave and all of his like Bottle Rockets and Rushmore. I felt like I've seen this movie before from him, so it was kind of the most um it was the most it was the least engaging for me because of that but now that you bring up that new parallel i think i uh have another excuse to rewatch it <laughs> I, yeah i love i love a lot of the filmmaking uh this, this i think this is what it takes when he switches around uh color palettes the most mm-hmm. um and i love like uh even like those kind of like the section when he's uh after francis mcdormand basically says like you guys should just go fuck or whatever like you know yes. like get out of here and um, the scenes of it, like him behind her on the scooter, and it's like it's not like uh, it's kind of you could tell it's on a set, like it's kind of uh, impressionistic uh, and uh, theatrical, but it's not uh, w- ex- actually existing within the world of film. Like it's kind of like a dream state. Uh, I love that. Um, I love the you know um, this this section moves me. Like um, I know I know how it's going to end. I, you know, I like the moment um, they're in the 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 radio station at the top of the physics building and the 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 power goes out i know he's going to climb up there and die but it affected me like I, it's like it just it's, there's a sadness to like this um this young kid you know fucking fighting for like this whatever bullshit at the end of the day and like he dies in pursuit of that in, in the most like um kind of accidental way he didn't die on the streets fighting against the police he died fucking trying to get a radio broadcast out where he could read his, the, the revised version of his manifesto um, and it, it it mirrored to me the section, in the sense that they don't show it. The section uh, from Grand Budapest was one of my favorite scenes in the movie when um, he's uh, they ask uh, whatever happened to uh, uh, Monsieur Gustav. He's like, in the end, they shot him. You know what I mean? Like it's like you kind of show up until the point where he's gonna die, and then you don't show him actually dying, but you know, like of course he dies. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like of course that's just how it had to go. Like you can't survive uh, running into the German army three times. Yeah, you know what no, I mean? Like it's, it's at some point. Like Edward, Edward Norton's not gonna be there to save you. You know what I mean? Um, so it, it, it reminded me of that, and I and I like that a lot. Um, and I like the like uh I like just little like just little moments like um when she, when Fritz McDormand goes in the bathroom at the beginning of the the section and she's uh you know crying because of the the tear gas and shit and she's wiping her face and then she just hears someone in the bathtub and it's like he was there the whole time like just like a little like that little reveal I loved. Um yeah. I might agree that it might be the weakest section of it, but not because it, I don't think it's bad. I think it's just because I loved the other the the seconds the sections that bookend it so much. Um, and with that, unless you guys have any any other um, uh, notes on this section, we can get into the uh, this section. I did have to I I I missed like uh, there's like a five minute span in there where I had to run to the concession stand and get a Monster Energy drink. Because there's something about Wes Anderson when he's at his most colorful and symmetrical, it unwrinkles my brain in a way. And you get too that relaxed. Makes me, I get too relaxed and I fall asleep. Dude. <laughs> it took me like five tries to watch Life Aquatic. Uh, having like, uh, what's it called? Royal Tenenbaum, same thing. I mm-hmm. kept falling asleep when oh. I first tried to watch it. Oh my God. That is a, quite a statement. You think you couldn't take Royal Tenenbaums in one sitting? No, he's saying like I'm saying because everything he makes looks so symmetrical and still and colorful. It puts it unwrinkles my brain in a way that makes me because I usually walk around in a state of pure stress and anxiety, and it like calms me in a way that puts me instantly to sleep. Interesting. It, it to me like Royal Tenenbaums. It just makes me cry. It's like I just all I remember is just being a twelve year old crying, being like, "This is what this is the sadness I don't know I have yet in my life." 
Um, <laughs> oh, I, I also thought Ted Lasso was our special guest, not Jason Momoa. I didn't know we were crushing Monster Energy drinks and uh, <laughs> trying to trying to yeah. <laughs> trying to get on the spice. Yeah, no, got to stay up. Can't be falling asleep <laughs> even, even, even Ted Lasso has to stay awake. Oh, um, yeah. uh, I want to get into the third section. Um, and again, I, I, it's, it's very hard for me to rank any of them. I think they're all excellent, but I, I think I love this section the most because as I was going through it, I was like, oh, this is a tribute to James Baldwin. And it made me just have a fucking like, like an emotional response. Like, I loved this section. This has my favorite line in it too, towards the end, which we'll get into later. Yes. Um, There's that one second where Jeffrey Wright looks so much like James Baldwin. I knew um, just from a couple like just brief descriptions about what Friends Dispatch was about in the New Yorker. Um, I, I heard James Baldwin's name float around a couple times, but if you forgot, there's like just that black and white scene where I think he's in jail, and it's like Jeffrey Wright must have just possessed, you know. Um, James Baldwin's soul for two seconds because for a second it literally looks like it's James Baldwin. It's freaky. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about here. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> I I I agree that uh, it's uh, it's it's excellently uh, done. Um, I love this section. I think um, I love that the uh, Jeffrey Wright's character is someone who has um type of quote unquote typographic memory. He can remember everything he ever wrote. And I love when he has digressions and he's like, um, do you mind if I dog ear this section of the book real quick while I go and like he goes into a different like starts talking about something that's happening, like a memory he had. That's actually when he starts talking to um telling the section about when he's talking to the chef and he tells him like the most beautiful thing uh he'd ever heard or whatever. But um I love uh I love the frame of the, I love the idea like there's like this just incredible chef who only works in a police station um yeah i love it's another instance of a precocious child put in uh, a wes anderson movie in the in the form of uh gg um yeah. uh the the police chief's son um i love that uh fucking ed norton is a cat burglar uh in that section when he uh kidnaps i mean he brutally murders a guy in front of a kid and then kind of sneaks in and he's tiptoeing around in ballerina shoes to fucking chloroform a kid and it's just so only wes anderson can make that like kind of like charming yeah. um it's I don't know I think I thought that this section section was section was excellent I love the the like I said like his mimicry of of like New Yorker style writing w without feeling like it's like someone trying to do this but actually feeling like this is an actual New Yorker writer you know what I mean is is incredible I think like 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 when he's when he's like um speaking when Jeffrey Wright is speaking this prose that from his piece is just like it's incredibly vivid writing like even when you're not watching like even if you listen to it silently yeah um you would be able to picture the things that he's saying I love like when he's getting lost in the um in the police station and you see like all the stuff that's happening in the background that's um, why this is in contention uh for my favorite w along with the the second part but also uh on the the, the way he's speaking that line where um and this is not my favorite line of the movie but the one where he asks him why uh he's talking about the food yeah so much oh my god and he says beautiful. uh self-reflection is best done alone yes like and and just doesn't want to get into it yeah I love and then that. uh eventually he's like i'll try to explain it if only because i'm weary weary yes <laughs> This is just it's it's a, it's a, it's a, such a well illustrated character like um uh it's it's such a like um he's like without being pretentious he's pretentious if, if that makes any sense like he's like uh yeah he he could be accused of being pretentious but he's not but you don't just, feel that way yeah, yeah. You, don't, you don't, he doesn't feel like an asshole in those in the way that we 
typically think of pretentious people. He's like, he's just like, I'm incredibly talented. I'm incredibly smart. I have this amazing gift to recall my writing. And like, I'm doing you a favor by being here, but I'm not going to make it seem like, uh, like it's too much of a hassle for me. I'm going to just go, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, I'm just going to remind you like, I don't have to do, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, uh, mm-hmm. you want me to, like, you know what I mean? I love that. Um, I love the little gag where he's like, um, and uh, and apologize to your viewers and the spokesman from the Gemini uh, soap powder or whatever. Yeah. Uh, tooth powder. Tooth powder. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I love the, the description of the dishes um, when he's uh, when he's telling like each course and how each course is served as they're planning the uh, the uh, siege of the uh, kidnappers' lair. <laughs> yeah. Um, the food looked excellent. It. I wanted to eat it. Uh, I got a, uh, a question because. As you know, I'm not a reader, and I've never read any James Baldwin. My only relationship with him is uh, from the documentary. Is did he did he have was that like a like a quirk of his to always go on about food, or was that just something for the Jeffrey Wright character? I think it was just something. I I've, I haven't read all of James Baldwin's writing, but I've read a, a lot of it, and it I think it's really just a quirk for the character. Oh, gotcha. But it, the, the James Baldwin thing is more about like the French, uh, the the yeah the you know the. Uh, gay uh, black writer moving to France in you know like as an escape. Yeah, you know. Um, I, 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 oh, you know what? I, what I love in this section is um when Bill Murray shows up to give him the application. Uh, yes, in prison, like in the chicken. By the way, cell. this is the moment where he looks like James Baldwin the most. This is the part yes. where I'm referencing okay. where he they they do a uh, a, a profile of him where she's like it's chest up bust. And it just looks like it's actually James Baldwin like took a photograph in black and white and gave it to this movie. It's crazy. Um, I love that. Like he's like, uh, this is how I'm gonna get you out of jail is giving you a job. Um and like he's kind of outlining of how you should go about this. And like, you know, he's like even like the little funny line where he's like, uh, I'm gonna give you five hundred dollars um uh for this work, uh, but I'm gonna take minus three fifty for the bailout post. But then I will <laughs> readvance you the two fifty for uh living quarters. And it's like that's just I love just, all the financial Bill Murray stuff throughout yeah. this whole movie. <laughs> a, you can just tell he's a horrible financier. Like he has no idea like what is he, he does not make good investments and he's just throwing money away left and right. Yeah, I love, I love that. that when he says even even he says that, um he's like uh he just takes he coddles and um uh and like treats his writers too well because he just loves it so much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's like I mean again like this movie is supposed to be a tribute basically to the New Yorker and um I can't remember the exact writer's name but who's a kind of facsimile of um Bill Murray's character but it's like I just love I love how much uh Wes Anderson loves writing and writers like even the Grand Budapest is framed as like sort of like a um a tribute to Stefan Zweig um uh the novelist and um like it's framed as a book being written about the Grand Budapest Hotel and I love little like flourishes like that mm-hmm. um. Well, think about how much of this screenplay is actually prose of each writer and each story. Even yeah. the Owen Wilson character in the beginning, like I, that's why I was like, ooh, when I first like started watching it, I was they're doing like that preamble with Owen Wilson describing Anway, Anwi. I was like, oh, Wes, you might have made your, you might have strategically made a bad decision in chess. Basically, like this might work short term, but this is not going to work long term. And I was totally wrong. He kept it up the whole time and every beautiful flourish, especially the ones in this in this section. I mean, like you said, it's like. It's just an absolute appreciation for writing. It's, I do wish I could – I wish they would tell you, like, who wrote certain lines because it all feels like one person is writing these screenplays, but there's four writing credits on it. So it's like – I don't know how they do it, but they they really come together and it really is seamless, some of this dialogue and prose mixing together. Um, 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think I think I think I think he writes most of the dialogue. I think um he writes the stories with um his co-writers uh for the most part. But you know, obviously they they probably may have contributed lines in certain ways, but I think that's another thing mm-hmm. is like, he's an underrated screenwriter, dude. He is excellent. Like uh he's just so good. Do you know in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, the doctor that like has like takes out the piece of brain and puts it into like his new it's like Sa- this the, the guy that created Sally. And he's like creating the new uh, Sally replacement. He just like takes a piece of brain out and yeah. puts it into the, the lady. I feel like Wes Anderson does that for each of his characters. I feel like he just takes a little piece of his brain out and sticks it in someone with like you know who has a character build, and then just lets sets them off and just sees yeah. how they react. And the, it, the important the important part of that is is that they're different parts of his brain. Whereas mm-hmm. like you'd see movies like. Early Tarantino got knocked for it a lot, and then like it was Guy, just him. Guy Ritchie got knocked for it a lot, where like every single character talked like t- Tarantino or talked like Guy Ritchie, which Tarantino got great at uh, making each character their own over the years, and Guy Ritchie is still doing the same exact fucking shit. <laughs> but like, that's the thing. Wes Anderson characters all sound like Wes Anderson characters, but they all sound like different Wes. Anderson yeah, they're pieces of him. Which is the important, like you said, like. Um, is little pieces of his brain, but not all of his brain. Because uh, one of the things, yeah, like Tarantino would have just like, okay, this is just basically me, but it's not me. Yeah. Whereas with Wes Anderson, it's like, okay, this is clearly something that he's interested in and he's going to put this in his character, but it's not like, I don't feel like I'm watching Wes Anderson on screen. More like I'm seeing a piece of Wes Anderson in this character. Um, I love the animated sequences. Uh, it's it, it's such a, a, really, a couple of really funny gags when basically uh, in the animated sequence when... Um, Ed Norton kidnaps the kid uh, for the second time as they're escaping after the poisoning. And he basically takes off. He drives past where the cops are, comes back around, and it does like three donuts in that same (laughs) area, then zips back out. The fucking wrestler jumps onto the hood of the car. And um, (laughs) so then at some point, he slams on the the brakes. The, The wrestler flies off the hood of the car, crashes through a glass window, they get out of the car, run, come back into the car. The wrestler jumps back onto the hood of the car, and they start driving. It's just such a funny little like. It, it, I was, I was just laughing so hard in this. It was just, it was so, uh, so funny. Yeah, I like that kind of bit. Like when the fact that they run around for thirty seconds somewhere else and then have to get back in the car, and the wrestler jumps back up. So just invalidating that thirty seconds entirely. Yeah, exactly. It's like a, it was very was, much like a Scooby Doo gag where yeah. it's like they're going through opening this door and closing that door and you know what I mean like. It's just crazy that this movie was made in 2020 because what I thought of immediately when I saw that uh, was James Bond in the the No Time to Die and like when he just circle he comes back and circles around. Oh, he three does, times. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, oh, but that's impossible. There's no way, you know, one one came before the other in this case. So uh, it was pretty crazy. Uh, I thought that was an awesome use of animation. I feel like that kind of. Um, solidified his use of black and white uh color three four aspect ratio uh animal anamorphic lenses and animation i mean the guy's basically doing you know an entire four years in film school right now you know for each different discipline it's 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 unbelievable i mean he just he really balances all those things without seeming forced did you guys get the animation though yeah like was that a reference to something that style well, I, I New Yorker cartoon. It yeah. It, was it the New Yorker cartoon? Because I felt like it was too uh it wasn't abstract enough to be a New Yorker cartoon. Well, like, it well, they, like... they they mentioned that uh it was it was recreated in a in a film strip. Uh, uh, in, a comic in strip. Same, yeah, exactly. 
yes, 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 yes. Okay, okay. Yes, so they did it in the now. style of a comic strip, and I loved the animation. It was so good. So it was so. Good. It was so, so vivid, and and also like when he kind of says like when he says like is reanimated in a film strip in like a he's like I think he says like in a cutesy way or he's like like uh, or, or like um over over exaggerated, which I think then allows it to just be a little ridiculous, like yeah. like that gag when he um the, the wrestler is thrown from the the thing and then thrown back on like he jumps back onto it, like it just allows for that to be um like wacky like that and um like, well, I, I think the style though subverted my expectations of Wes Anderson so much like when you said when I knew found out that Wes Anderson was going to do stop animation I almost knew what Fantastic Mr. Fox was going to look like right if you told me there was going to be an animation scene which I had like heard it was like um rumored in this movie I got to be honest I wasn't expecting that so I was really like wondering like how much of that was Wes Anderson's vision and how much it was like the animation team you know controlling that aspect of the movie that's an interesting question too, and like, you know, even like but going back to your point about even like um how he kind of like masters like all different types of like camera moves. There's even like stop motion in this that is excellent. Um, is this scene when basically it's the shootout between the the kidnappers and the cops before they send in um the chef, and every bit of the the set that's being destroyed by the um uh the bullets that's stop motion. I, I was like, oh shit, that's oh, okay. fucking stop. Like it was it was. Like it, it just it just made me love the movie. It's like this guy's so good. Like it, it's because it's unrecognizable on first glance. You know what I mean? It just looks like the set's being destroyed, but that's stop motion. I was like, this guy is just tap. Like he's just playing with his food at this point. Like he's just like tapping into every bit of his bag. It's amazing. I um, did not pick up on that. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that again now and pick yeah, up on that. I want to see this movie again right now. Honestly, um, I literally wanted to start the oh. That, so to kind of go to the ending, that was the one thing I was not disappointed by, but. When they were when Jeffrey Wright was getting up to do like to start the ending of the movie, I thought for sure what they were going to say was going to be the beginning dialogue of the movie, which it wasn't. I, I I'm surprised he didn't do that. Did you guys expect that to happen, or was I the only person thinking that was going to happen? Do you know what I mean? No, I, I'm not even sure that I I follow you. I didn't so expect in the that. beginning. In the beginning, they they start the story of Arthur. What's his name? Arthur Howitzer. Howitzer. Howitzer, they start the story with that, with the, the prose kind of describing his life, how oh, Francis gotcha. Fats started. And when they, when Jeffrey Wright writes that first sentence, I thought for sure it was going to book be end the, by being that. And so yeah. then the whole movie would have truly been the article sort of thing. And like, I'm surprised that he left that open-ended. I'm, I feel like intentionally, I, I just didn't know if you guys were expecting that to close the same way as I did. I didn't expect that, but that would have been uh, a nice kind of like ribbon on it. But I liked, I liked <laughs> the way it ended but, yeah, as is. Cause I, I definitely need, that uh that last line my favorite line in the movie where um the chef is laid up in the hospital explaining you know after he ate the poison uh to show the criminals that the food wasn't poisoned so he could kill them all and then he's recovering in the hospital and uh jeffrey wright calls him brave and he goes am i brave I just wasn't in the mood to be a disappointment to everyone. Dude, I wrote that down the moment. He, I was like, this is Same. the greatest line I've ever That's heard in my fucking best life. Because I feel incredible. like anything brave I've ever done has only been I can't because let everybody I was down. self-conscious yeah. Yeah. about having to to be in that moment. Yeah, it's yeah. I loved that line. I was like, yeah, this is one of the best lines of like, yeah. It's and it's like, yeah, it's perfect. It's 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 such a, a little and like that's for a character who doesn't really speak very much at all. Yeah. And they even call attention to it where he's like, uh, you only give the chef one line of dialogue in the entire piece. And he's like, Well, I actually had to say this other thing. But like like it's such an incredibly like um uh three dimensionalizing uh moment for that character. And it says so much about, you know, that character, but also like just like 
it's it's just such a like an interesting look it's at a one person. One of the most honest things that I've ever heard yes. anyone say, and like I started welling up immediately as soon as I heard it. Yeah, it it, it worked on me, and um, even like I, what I was gonna say is like as we're wrapping up here, the the closing of this movie I loved because like um one there's that little line when uh the 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 the, the um kind of Mater D or whatever waiter waiter comes in with the cake and uh she's like don't light the candles uh he's dead. Uh, yeah. And then, but then, um, uh, Owen Wilson's like, "Yeah, I'll have a slice." Though, yes, uh, I thought that was very funny. But I love, um, just hammering home like this is a tribute to writers and and journalism and um, and like the New Yorker is like how they all kind of come together at the end to write the piece together. I think that was it's such a cute like like a, like a, like a, a like a kind of charming little way to like give one last tribute to this fictional newspaper is like um like they're all very different and then they kind of outline that during um the the opening of the movie about how like they all have their own like different styles but like yeah. they came together to uh to write this piece about this guy who um who effectively they're writing the last piece of their careers or at, at that paper because you know, they talk about how he's going to disband the paper in the last issue and they come together to do that i think i thought that was just so i love that I think it was pretty uh, the my my uh, favorite thing is that I think the paper kind of goes on, right? I think it was kind of implying that the paper is gonna the Francis Batts is gonna go on against his wishes. And the reason I say that is because uh, of what Adrian Brody's speech with the, the there should be a double standard. Like there should be a double standard when uh, an extremely influential writer creates an institution that even after he dies, even if his will states that the thing should end, that we know for the good of society it should continue. There should be a double standard. Like when That's almost like is, uh, an argument for like Prince's money grubbing family putting out his whack ass shit he didn't want released. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just handed them their their case in yeah, on a silver platter. But who's the who's the dude um who does uh, SNL? I can't believe I can't name his name right now. Laura Michaels? Ooh. Pete Davidson. Yeah. It's like if he dies, like does SNL have to go with him? I'm sure in his will somewhere it, it stipulates that, you know, SNL dies with him. But it's like, I mean, honestly, kill SNL. It but should already matter. be off the air. <laughs> it but should like, be dead. It's, it's no French dispatch. I don't know. I'll if tell it, you that. Yeah, it's if, definitely no French dispatch. If it's your thing and you don't want it to continue without, it just seems so disrespectful of them if they would have kept that paper going. Yeah, I feel like disrespect is the nature of revolution, my friend. And in order to revolutionize art and society, you must disrespect. It is inherent in the revolution. I think it's also tough too with like something like a TV show or even a newspaper, right? Because it's like there's so many people who like um because people have complained a lot about like um just it it was this is kind of completely off topic, but uh, Jeopardy, right? And uh, Alex Trebek was like, if I was going to get replaced, I was like, he he pointed out two specific people that he thought would be replacements, like, but also like, what the fuck does it matter what Alex Trebek has to say about this? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like obviously he's this is his job and it has been his job, and he's like, he's is he the best at it or is he the guy we've become accustomed to knowing? He was excellent at the job, not to say that he wasn't, but it's like he's just because he is. Like like Michael Jordan uh, is, is was one of the best NBA players of all time. He's proven to be a horrible NBA owner and, and 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 judge of talent because like those two things aren't necessarily um uh those are mutually exclusive you ideas. Could just do you know? something else that carries the spirit, dude. Like all right, say Alex Trebek was the sole owner of Jeopardy and he died and he didn't want it to go on, like. Could do a show called Trivia, change it enough to respect his fucking wishes. Instead of Same Jeopardy, thing, called Stakes. <laughs> they they could do their own version of the French Dispatch, call it something else, you know. Well, yeah, I think that that would be awesome. Like you know, like but like um, I just I'm just specifically in the Jeopardy thing. Not that he didn't want it to go on, but like like 
if he wanted to, this person to be his replacement, like, yes, it's respectful to him to to do that, but also, like, why does that mean, like, does that mean he would be the, like, what if he picked the worst possible person? What if he said, Andy Dick should replace me? Like, do we have to listen to him because he's dead now? Fuck that, dude. But I do think they should close the paper. And I don't think I think he's put too much in 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 um in or um like the way he, they outlined what he was going to do. It seems like he put enough is set in stone that he, they wouldn't be able to keep the paper going. They would have they would have to do like like style shed and create a new thing because he's like 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 if the financial aspects of it is just like he shut he shut the shit the fuck down. But um. I said I wanted to say I thought it was an excellent ending to the movie. I thought I loved the movie. I love that, like we said before, that it's not three movies or four movies because this is the Owen Wilson section where he's kind of just kind of like it's basically the the Steve Zissou uh, "Let Me Tell You About My Boat" section where he's just telling mm-hmm. you how the city works. Um, I love that section because there's a lot of little fun gags in there, like the the choir boys chasing people around the city and shit, and like there's eight and a half bodies that show up in the river every uh, every year despite population growth and. Um, some other line, but anyway, uh, I loved all of it. Um, I, I want to see it again. Uh, there's it. It's definitely going to be like a highly rewatchable movie. It's going to reward you on more rewatches. You're going to pick up on more details, like the stop motion thing. I said, I'm sure I missed a lot of different things. And uh, if you guys want any final thoughts on it, let's hear it. Ted Lasso. Yeah, I think. Oh, Ted Lasso. Let's Ted Lasso go first. All right. Yeah, it's me here, Ted Lasso. <laughs> I'm nice, <laughs> but I'm hiding emotional trauma. That's you know, my my final words, as only I could say them, is believe. Yep, that's your that's your thing. Well, believe. after finding f- f- to follow such a poignant um, dissertation on Wes Anderson's <laughs> body of work, um, I'm gonna have to say Wes, uh, Sean, to your point, where it's time and time again. I you know we are we're often on the same page. Um, and I after watching this movie, I was like. I actually rewatched Moonrise Kingdom and Darjeeling Limited prior to, to watching this movie just to try to get into the, the Wes Anderson spirit um, and check out some of the movies I've watched the least. Um, and anyways, I just was like, man, maybe he is my favorite. Regardless of that decision of if is he my favorite or not, um, I think he's back, baby. Um, I think that this is definitely going to be one of his top five uh, works. Um, to me right now, short list is like that Royal Tenenbaums is always going to be the number one then French Dispatch, Grand Budapest, and then like a Moonrise Kingdom, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, and to put a work that good, that high, 30 years into making them or 20 years into making them, I'm not sure when this first one was released. It's 25 this is now. Third, this is, yeah, okay. was 96. So three, three decades of filmmaking and to be, you know, churning out some of your best work this late in the game, I can only see, I can only imagine how good he's going to get. I think he has a lot left in the tank and movies are good. More of this, please. Amen, brother. Uh, sweeter than honey, all the Ted Lassoisms. Sweeter than honey. Um, yeah, that uh, that that that'll do it for the first dispatch. Uh, week here at uh, the Shawmary International Film Festival. You gentlemen want to plug anything before we go? Yeah, for sure. Uh, at Freud Mayweather on Twitter, I am currently. Uh, some guy is currently racking up hundreds of likes because I made a post about wanting to fuck this. Uh. I made a comment under a picture of this sex robot about how I wanted to fuck the sex robot. And he just said, you're not fooling. Uh, everyone already knew that. And he posted a picture of my headshot. And he's fucking getting hundreds of likes yeah, right now. At your expense. <laughs> so go like that tweet. <laughs> that guy really did a number on me. and He deserves your likes. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think I want to plug Ted Lasso. I think it's streaming now on all Apple uh, streaming services. To be honest, uh, it's, it's not great. 
it's 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 emmy nominated and emmy won right no so, i'm not I mean, supposed Emmys to say that right i'm not supposed to no, say no. That, that it's not great but you know like we just closed so the season believe. out with a scene where like a church full of people sang never gonna give you up from mm. fucking rick astley so it's, it's got that kind of cheesy horse shit in it so, powerful stuff powerful i'm just surprised stuff. you didn't have enough like uh say on set to say like let's not do this it's weird, you know, like I get to do some really powerful scenes on there and then they go and do some cheesy shit like that to fuck it up. It's really yeah, I guess uneven. it's like you're a prisoner of the character, right? Like you don't have as much say as you want because at this point it's something that we expect from Ted Lasso. So it's kind of hard to say I wouldn't do this because as a matter of fact, you would do that. Yeah, and have. <laughs> and we'll continue to. Season three coming soon. Uh, anything other than Ted Lasso you'd like to plug, Jero? Uh no, uh just keep watching Nobody Asked On and uh plugging that stuff and this podcast is pretty good if you ask me. So if you like movies, keep listening because you're already listening. Thank you. Yeah, I was gonna plug that as well. Nobody asked Sean, my other podcast where I talk about uh the topics of the day. What's and what's happening and butts. I talked about some butts this past week. Nice. Hot Got topics, man. Um, I think you're the first person to uh do hot topics. Yeah, I think right? I'm 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 pioneering a whole new uh yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um check that out uh lowbrow showing instagram highbrow showing twitter um next week i think we might be talking about last night in soho but don't quote me on that Um, jero it was great talking to you honey great talking to you too i wish wish, uh i got to meet you in person ted uh i wish i I wanted to hang out with my friend stash for (laughs) old time's sakes but uh uh, if you uh, if you if you see Stoss around, let him know I miss him, sweetie. We'll do. Oh yeah, I'm okay. Ted. <laughs> I mean t- Ted. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but that's it. And as we always say at the end of this uh, show, cut. <laughs>